Well, it's a pleasure to have Redeemer Presbyterian Church of Elk Grove joining us today. Wonderful to see many familiar faces with us. We've been going through the book of Psalms here, and so I've chosen as my passage for today's sermon to be Psalm 78, verses 1 through 22, even though it's a bit further along in Psalms than we currently are. But I thought it was the perfect psalm to cover because we are halfway between two significant celebrations of Mother's and Father's Day, and this psalm is addressed to parents, but I don't want you, if you are single or if you are a child, to think that this doesn't apply to you, because we all have our role to play here in this psalm. And I'm going to read through verses 1 through 8 to start, and as we do here, if you wouldn't mind standing as we acknowledge that this is God's holy and inspired word. Psalm 78, beginning with verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. And I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation." a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, give us insight and understanding to what we read. Help us to to apply what we not only see and read here, but Father, to, to place ourselves in this context of Asaph speaking to the people and encouraging them, challenging them, exhorting them to godliness. May we incline our ears to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, these are passionate words by Asaph, one of King David's three chief musicians. And not only was Asaph a musician, but according to 1 Chronicles 25, the Holy Spirit also prophesied through him, and his challenge to all of us is to preserve a legacy of faith into future generations by telling stories of the past. I was really encouraged to see that beginning slide up there uh, by Doug Wilson. I thought it was a great quote saying that within a story, hardship is a grace. And that's a lot of what Asaph is talking about here in Psalm 78, that there is this legacy of faith that we all, as I said, not just parents, but all of us, men and women, are to be communicating to the next generations these stories of how God's people were faithful, but also, you'll see in the emphasis here in Psalm 78, how they were faithless and what happened as a result. One of my greatest delights over the years has been telling my children and now my grandchildren stories. Stories are important to family culture because they give substance to life. They bring the past to the present and they strengthen memory. 
And that's true not only of the personal stories of our family, but also the stories of the broader family of God's people. And Psalm 78 tells us that stories have an even greater purpose than those. Asaph, in Psalm 78, says that we tell these stories to the next generations so that each generation to come may know them, that they may arise and declare them to their children. Why? There is something about knowing about the past that causes the next generations to set their hope upon God and to keep his commandment. There is a connection between the works of God, knowing those, and then having a hope in him. Now perhaps you think of the Psalms as worship songs of Israel, as that section of the Bible that's filled with poetry and filled with music. But immediately as we look at Psalm 78, we see that it's a little different. We see Asaph saying, give ear, O my people. Almost as if he's saying, stop singing (laughs) and listen. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Because he's teaching. In this moment, he has important lessons to share. And that phrase, give ear, in Hebrew is azar, which means to listen with an understanding that leads to obedience. Incline your ears. That phrase means to stretch out your ears like a a dog that pricks up its ears. And almost, you you see it sometimes, lean them forward to, to catch the sound. Or like a soldier who stands at attention. Asaph is saying, don't just sit. Don't just stop singing but stretch out your ears towards me and lean forward in the chair and hear every word. Don't miss a syllable. And to whom is he speaking? Asaph's primary focus here is parents, but fathers in particular, as verse 5 reveals. And note that Asaph does not lay, I think this is very important, he doesn't lay the responsibility of telling these stories at the feet of the Levitical priests. Those were the people who held the position of spiritual leader and pastors of the people. Those would have been in today's churches, the pastors and the Sunday school teachers and more. And that's not where Asaph says the responsibility begins. It begins with the home. John Knox, the 16th century father of Presbyterianism, said in a letter to refugees in Geneva, fathers, you are bishops, And you are kings. Your wife, children, servants, and family are your bishopric, and it shall be required of you to carefully and diligently instruct them in God's true knowledge, to plant virtue in them, and to repress vice. In Job 1, 4 through 5, we read, And his sons would go and feast in their homes, their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. And one of the proofs of Job's righteous life is that He was the spiritual leader of his home. And as a righteous man, 
he felt the obligation to act as a priest and to offer sacrifices on behalf of each of his children. And the passage indicates that they were present, for he would send for them, and that he would sanctify them. And note that this was not just an occasional practice. The passage says that Job did this regularly. And some of the other translations, uh, I think, capture a bit more of the language when they say that he did it continually. And if that's true, as commentators believe that Job lived in the earliest times after the flood, that would put Job before Moses and before the priesthood. So you can see that the very first worshiping community was the family. And the very first corporate worship was family worship. This may be one reason why the Puritans often compared the family to a church. Richard Baxter said, a Christian family is a church, a society of Christians combined for the better worshiping and serving God. William Perkins agreed, arguing these families wherein this service of God is performed are, as it were, little churches. Yea, even a type of paradise upon earth. Is that how you see your family? Is that how you see your marriage? We are to bring God's word into our home on a continual basis, and that's what God told Abraham, what he told Moses, and what we hear in Psalm 78. God's law, the story of his people, the history are all to be the subject of conversation both inside and outside the home from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And the point is that your daily lives must be saturated with the remembrance and the celebration that you belong to your covenant king and that everything you do serves his purposes. Just as a challenge to you, just to think about right at this moment, how well does your family, is your Do you as a wife or you as a husband, do you as children, how well do you know the stories of the Bible? And I'm not just talking about Noah and the ark. I'm not talking about Moses and the plagues. I'm talking about all the stories, especially the ones that show failure. I'll bet we don't know those as well. And perhaps nowhere is the importance of telling these stories seen with greater importance than here in Psalm 78. Now the Holy Spirit expects that we, you know, as Asaph told his audience to listen carefully and incline their ears, the Holy Spirit expects that we would listen carefully and appropriately respond to these words, and that's emphasized even more in those next verses there. You can see them. I will open my mouth in a parable and utter dark sayings, he says, of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. Now, single men, single women, you have a part to play in this great teaching of the stories of the past. Not only can you mentor those younger than you, but you can learn from them yourselves. You can encourage parents to teach them to their children. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 4 that we can have multiple fathers in the faith. And I believe that applies for multiple fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. So if you're single, don't think that you're exempted from what Asaph is saying here. And children, you're the ones that are to be hearing the stories in the first place. You represent the next generation. 
So pay attention to what Asaph shares as examples and learn from them. Now parables are common sayings or stories that have a profound teaching that is understood only by those that are taught by God. And the parables in Psalm 78, these are stories. These are common stories, likely ones that actually the people would have known. I think they knew their Bibles even better than we do. But Asaph says that they contain deep truths. And he says that they're dark sayings, and by dark he means obscure or difficult sayings, which means an even greater need for us to pay attention, to ask the Lord to give us insight into what these stories mean. They're also dark stories because they tell of Israel's failures. And sometimes, as I said at the beginning, this is some of the most important types of stories for us to tell. The next generation needs to know that their ancestors lost perspective. That there were times when they were stuck in in challenges or trials and they responded with fear or disobedience or anxiety or lack of faith and they could not correctly interpret their situation. Why is that important to know? It's because we face it all the time. Our children need to be ready. And Asaph is not just speaking about teaching moments. He is talking about a systematic, purposeful, regular teaching about God's relationship to his people in the past in order to inspire faith in the present. This is is vital. This is what we should be talking about over fellowship meals, at least partly. This is what we should be talking about in social conversations with one another. We should be rehearsing The stories of the past, because this is a difficult time, friends. Paul told Timothy that Timothy's grandmother had entrusted a good deposit of teaching with her grandson. We need to make a good teaching, a good deposit into the lives of the children around us. Let's look at one of these parables in verses 9 through 11. Asaph recounts... You can see there an episode that took place within the tribe of of Ephraim. We don't know exactly when this event took place, although some believe it may have been the loss of the ark to the Philistines during the life of Samuel. If you look at verse 9, it says, The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law. They forgot His works and his wonders that he had shown them. And what we see here is that the previous generations obviously faced difficult trials. We, we face similar trials, different scenarios. They had an opportunity to trust God there, but instead they did not keep the covenant. They forgot that God always provides the strength and grace that is necessary to weather any difficulty. And beyond just saying that, I don't want you to miss a couple of these interesting details that are a part of Ephraim's story. First of all, you know Ephraim is one of the sons of Joseph. In fact, he was the younger son, but he was treated by Joseph as receiving the blessing of the firstborn. And when Ephraim's grandfather Jacob blessed Joseph, Jacob blessed by extension, the two tribes that would be Joseph's representatives, Ephraim and Manasseh. And look at what Jacob said. He says, his bow remained in strength. 
and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. I think it's interesting that Jacob's blessing upon ultimately Ephraim is that his bow will remain strong, but by the strength of God. But Asaph tells us that the children of Ephraim, they were armed and carrying bows. Don't let that detail, because of that, just pass you by without connecting it to to Jacob's blessing. Those were the very weapons that should have been strong against the enemy. But against expectation, the Ephraimites turned back, did you see, in the day of battle. They turned back in the day of battle, which means that they were dressed for war, that they had stationed themselves for battle, that they had every intent of fighting, but at some point, they turned their backs and ran. Right in the face of victory. How are you doing in the face of battle? Are you marching out with the confidence of victors over temptation only to turn and run under the heat of oppression? I can't imagine what it must have been like for people of the scriptures who had really difficult tasks. In our weekly Bible study, we're going through the book of Jeremiah, and if you know that story well, you know how utterly unbelievable it was to Jeremiah that the people of his own town and his own family would betray him. How at times he was brought to trial, people wanting to kill him, the very leaders, spiritual leaders of his day. Here he was being faithful to God, wanting to put him to death, threw him in a pit. Isaiah, who was commissioned by God and knows from the very beginning that no one will listen to him. Moses telling the Pharaoh to let him take the Israelites out of Egypt. Right? Elijah by himself before 400 prophets of Baal. The Apostle Paul. How do we face the battle? How did they face the battle? How do we not run? Well, that's the importance of telling the story. We have to understand why the Ephraimites ran. And they ran because they lost perspective and they forgot the way that God works. They forgot their stories of the past. And therefore they couldn't correctly interpret their situation. The Ephraimites, they were to remember the the faithfulness of their covenant in God. They were supposed to remember that he gives strength to his people, especially in situations that seem impossible. Especially when the odds are overwhelming. That's one of the most common themes in the Bible. God working through his people in a way that the world considers foolishness, but what the Lord considers strength. True power paradoxically found in weakness. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the word of the cross is foolishness, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God because Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. You know, people want to see miracles, they want to be intellectually persuaded and proved, these concepts, but we preach Christ crucified. 
that's none of the above in their minds. Which instead is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the world today is no different. The world today is no different than Paul's time. People still seek after miracles. They still seek after worldly wisdom. But Paul says that the foolishness of God is greater than that foolishness of men. Or the wisdom of men, I should say. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And how could that be? How could, how could God be said in any capacity to be foolish? Well, that's where the stories for the Ephraimites came into play. Same stories that we have for us today. The Ephraimites should have been learning from their own stories of the past. They should have been remembering, for example, how God told a man named Noah to build an ark in the middle of a dry land. And how for decades this seemingly foolish, crazy old man hammered at a boat and everyone laughed at him until it started to rain. And then they weren't laughing anymore. Or the Ephraimites would have known the story of Moses. And in fact, verse 13 of Psalm 78 recounts the story that I have in mind where Israel was caught between the Egyptian army, the desert, and the Red Sea. But verse 13 says, God divided the sea. But don't don't forget the foolishness of the story itself and what the Ephraimites were supposed to have learned from that. Before that miraculous event, the very idea of standing still while an army throwing up clouds of dust, all those chariots, getting closer, would have seemed the most foolish thing in the world to just be standing still, right? And as the people would have asked Moses, what are we to do? And Moses was to have responded, don't worry, get everybody ready and walk up to the edge of the water, what would their response have been? Are we going to swim? Right? Moses hadn't told them what was going on. Shouldn't we run? Shouldn't we get ready to fight? Shouldn't we maybe put the women and children behind us at least? No, just wait. Why? What's the plan? I'm going to raise my staff and the water's going to part. And two million people that day walked to the shore of the water, and an 80-year-old man lifted up his staff, and the waters parted. And so many people are skeptical of whether that really happened or not. They even argue that the water that is spoken of was not the Red Sea, but the Sea of Reeds, which at places is a few feet deep. And they say, well, this was a time of the year where potentially there was a strong east wind, and so it was really marshy, and and really the two million Israelites walked across an ankle-deep water That was the miracle, they say. And people who argue like that in their attempt to reject the supernatural actually give us a far greater miracle than we ever asked because according to them, the entire Egyptian army drowned in six inches of water. (laughs) You see, we know that God who spun a billion galaxies into place, who holds all things together can part the Pacific Ocean like an envelope if he wants, right? So split the Red Sea? Absolutely. 
Noah, build a box, a boat where there is no water. Tavak, by the way, is Hebrew for what amounts to a box. Moses, lift up your staff and I'll take care of, of the Red Sea. There are other similar stories. Joshua, Jericho, marching around the city seven times and blowing trumpets. Elijah, before the prophets of Baal, get everything wet, drench it with water, and God's Fire will come down from heaven. Every single instance was foolish, irrational, unreasonable, had nothing to commend itself to the wisdom of man such that man would exercise faith in it. It was contrary to everything obvious, and yet God demanded that as a condition because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And what is that foolishness? It is His divine wisdom and might demanding faith from us in the impossible. What should Ephraim have learned? What should Ephraim have done? Noah, Moses, Joshua, stand still because our God is the God of the impossible. This may seem foolish to be standing here against overwhelming odds, But we serve the God who launches hailstones at the Canaanites, right? And the greatest foolishness of all that the Ephraimites didn't know, but we know today is that a Jewish carpenter died outside the walls of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago and then was personally resurrected and now sits enthroned at the right hand of God. Stories. Ephraimites should have remembered those stories. They went into battle in their own strength and they forgot their God. And these are the stories we need to be rehearsing to the next generations. This is how God operates. When you find yourself in a difficult situation, young person and in your first job or your second job or whatever it may be, when you find yourself in that troubling scenario where you're facing persecution from friends, when you are talking about the gospel to someone who mocks and ridicules you, remember that you serve the God of Noah and Moses and Elijah and Paul, Jesus. Your warriors called to fight the great war to expand God's kingdom. And God will have you face impossible situations so that you will not get the glory through your own strength. But so that every time that instead of the Ephraimites turning and running, every time that you stand, you will be strengthened in your own faith and you will give glory to your God who enabled you to stand in the day of trouble. Skip down to verse 17. Learn another pattern of the previous generations. It says, They sinned even more against Him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God and said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Well, the story of the Israelites in the desert reveals a second common theme in the Old Testament. It 
It said people consistently test God by desiring the things of the flesh rather than the things above. Do you see this happening in your own life or in the lives of your children? What do you most desire? What do they most desire? Do they desire Christ and His benefits above all else? Or are their hearts captive? Are you telling your children of the one who is the very meaning of life? Are you telling yourselves? Are you telling each other? Is the good news of Christ a significant part? Can every day your family say that they have heard the Gospel, that they have been reminded that God is their King and Lord, been directed to their need for a Savior, been told in some capacity about Christ's great love and provision? Singles, are you encouraging your peers and those younger than you in these things? Many of us, we know the lure of the flesh. We know how easily we are drawn away by our desires. And the typical response, the typical response, especially with parents, is to remove things. Remove godless friends, remove music, remove television, remove everything that we think is bad, as might be an enticement. And I'm not suggesting that you don't remove things. What I am suggesting is that you replace them with things that are better. And so to do that, you have to be telling these stories. You have to be explaining why they are sacrificing these desires and activities and what makes these things that you offer in their place to be better things. Because I'll tell this to you parents, if your children know only of sacrifice without the reason why, they will simply think, and I've said this to our home church here at CVP many times, they will simply think that their sacrifice is because they grew up in a strict home. They'll talk about how they can't wait to grow up to be adults so that they can make up their own rules and enjoy their own privileges. And so as parents, you need to make sure that you go the rest of the way and replace their sacrifice with something better, with true joy. You need to explain using the Scriptures that God's precepts are better than life. That we are people with a purpose. Not just guided by the pattern of eating and sleeping and working, but we are pilgrims in this world looking forward to a prize that lies before us, the hope of a better place. And it's the same lesson that God was trying to teach the Israelites. Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone. That same lesson over and over and over again. Stop thinking with your fleshly mind on food and on material things. It's easy to trust God when He's in the midst of parting the Red Sea. Nor taking the lives of Egyptian firstborn. It's not as easy to trust God when you've been walking for a week in the desert and your mind starts dwelling upon all the pleasant things you used to eat that you've given up. And pretty soon you forget about the slavery that was associated with those desires. 
It's very easy to have only the short-term memory. We forget the slavery of the past. Stories. Lessons. We need to teach one another that no eye has seen nor mind conceived of the things that God has prepared for us. We want to be the type of people, the type of church described in Hebrews 10 that is described as joyfully accepting the plundering of our property because we know we have a better possession and an abiding one. We can't just stop tasting and seeing the world. We must taste and see that the Lord is good. For he has milk and honey for us. That's why Asaph cries out in an earlier psalm, in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I encourage you all to keep looking at Psalm 78. The remaining 50 verses recount how Israel rebelled against God over and over again. More lessons to glean. And the point, of course, is that if we aren't teaching these next generations, and young men and young women, if you are not learning the lessons from the past, where the people of God fail to look to Him in faith, to delight in His ways, that the results are devastating. Because in our sinfulness, we end up testing God, we end up tempting God, we end up grieving God, angering God. Perhaps nothing, though, is worse than verse 59 here of Psalm 78, where it says, when God heard this, He was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. We do not want to provoke our God that he should abhor us. So here are my challenges for you today. First to your parents, you parents, is your training in the environment of your home focused upon directing your children to God and encouraging godly maturity? How are you doing in the things that we've been talking about today? I know that when our children were young, struggled a bit with some of my goals for them. I wanted them to grow up to be mature adults and, and to enjoy. I wanted to enjoy them as they matured, and that wasn't bad in and of itself. I wanted them, obviously, to be believers. And, but it was very easy to define a mature adult with an image of what I thought was the perfect child. You know, an educated, successful Christian who would marry an educated, successful Christian spouse. Well, what was wrong with that picture? It was my own personal vision of what my children should look like as adults with little reference to the heart. So much emphasis on external appearance and performance. I need to have the goals of the next generation being faithful. Second, for all of us, whether we're parents or not, align our goals with God by ourselves, learning the stories of the past, committing to talk about them, to teach them, 
Third, we must all take this commission by Asaph seriously. That's why he starts with telling us to stop and listen carefully. We don't want to see the legacy of our faith go the way of those that we see in the book of Judges. In other words, this third application is we need to have a multi-generational vision. It isn't just about getting through COVID. It's not just about thinking about what does it look like in hyperinflation or in the midst of a European war. It's not just about living day to day and we need to buy some wheat because the price of wheat's going to go up 10 times because the Ukrainians, you know, we can easily fall into that pattern of thinking where it's just this tunnel vision of day by day. We don't think about five years from now or 10 years from now, much less 100 years from now. But friends, we must be multi-generational in our scope. This is a critical time in human history. So do you know your Bibles well? If I started calling out story titles, Jeremiah gets the false prophet Uriah and the people of Anathoth. What's that story? Gideon and the threshing floor. The apostles and Simon Magus. Would you know those stories? Would you know what they are about? Would you know the lessons learned? Would you be prepared to share them with someone else? Let's break the patterns. Asaph says, let's stop this. Let's stop this because continued compromise only prolongs the pain and we need to learn the patterns of the past and these failures so that we will not be a generation of failure. May the Lord give all of us the will and the strength both in the home and in the church to teach the testimony of the Lord so that the next generation might put their hope in God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, we are so thankful that you have saved us out of this world. But you have saved us to commission us to something better and different, not to live in a day-to-day tunnel vision, short-term memory perspective, but Lord, to have in our minds and hearts the stories of the past, to be rehearsing them, to be teaching them to one another. And I pray that you would give each of us a sense of purpose that includes the next generations to come. And as we look around us, some of us in our 40s and 50s and 60s and older, and as we look at these young children around us and we think, this is the next generations. Or may it be our intent to tell them the stories. Not just the stories of the immediate past, but the stories that go all the way back to Adam and Eve and all the great things that you've done amongst your people, including all the ways that your people have been faithless. Lord God, strengthen us, bless us, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name I gave these things to you. Amen.